Hello, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the Network, and host of this Meet the Author podcast. In episode eight, we are delighted to have Professor Rachel Murphy to discuss her latest book, *The Children of China's Great Migration*, with Cambridge University Press. Uh, welcome, Rachel, uh, to uh, the uh, Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. We are very excited today to talk about your most recent book with Cambridge University Press. But before that, can we invite you to briefly introduce yourself? Oh, thank you so much, Cora. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk uh, with the network.、Um, so my post is in Chinese Development and Society at Oxford. In the School of Global and Area Studies, and also、um, I'm a fellow at Saint Anthony's College.、Uh, I did my PhD in sociology in Cambridge many years ago now, and my field is the sociology of China. So I'm really interested in researching the social changes wrought by urbanization, migration, education, population change,、uh, and various state policies,、um, and Uh, while I sometimes use mixed methods, I really prefer qualitative research. I like to understand the lived experience of these changes, and I I love stomping around and talking to different people.、Um, so basically, that is、uh, my positioning as a scholar. Great, great.、Um, so,、uh, in in particular, in relation to this book that we are discussing today, what、uh, motivated you to conduct this piece of research on left behind children in rural China? So there was a, a lot of research on migration. It's a very excited field. It's also quite a crowded field,、um, but it felt that there wasn't that much research done on on children. It was mainly on the migrants themselves, and also a lot of research on on women、uh, and privileged. Privileging women's voices, which made for lots of lively reading, but there felt to be a clear gap.、Um, and through、uh, collaborators at Reming University, Professor Taran, we talked a lot because we used to be postdocs together,、um, and I was influenced by his approach of wanting to do、uh, survey-based research to look at questions that both interested us. And in the process of doing. The survey、uh, implementation, you know, I had the chance to talk with some of the the children,、um, and in the course of reviewing the literature for our shared papers、um, and reading various things that he kindly passed on to me,、um, it just felt that there wasn't really children's voices anywhere.、Um, that this whole field on left behind children, with some exceptions like work by Ye Jingzhong. Uh, it was largely dominated by survey research.、So、children's voices felt to be really missing,、um, and at the same time, the sort of whole field of the sociology of migration, especially research on tra- international transnational families, a lot of that was emphasizing relationships、uh, and migration as a relational process, which was quite a big difference from my earlier research, which was all about. You know migration and livelihoods, and so, in a way, I've also been very influenced by the wider state of the field and research, 
um, and children with their intuitive emphasis on relationships seem to be a really interesting way of trying to contribute to this evolving trend within wider literature on migration. Mm, that's fascinating. So it's like it's both methodological, but also in terms of your response to address the broader field. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So uh, what are the key findings or messages of this book, uh, which is titled The Children of China's Great Migration? So uh, I think a few, I'll just try and pinpoint a few because I started this research in 2010. So I have been thinking about it and doing it for 10 years. So I will try to be uh, succinct. Um, so one area I think is around children's agency in the context of migration. So by now there's already quite a lot of papers saying, oh, the left behind positioning suggests children are passive. But of course, there's also wider literature on children's agency. So what I try to do is say that children are participants, active participants in the family migration project, as much as the adults. Um, but of course, this agency of the children in actively participating in the family project is very uh, complicated. So, you know, this great decision of parental migration is made for the children. Uh, you know, parents make it on the children's behalf without ever consulting the children. So, so many children had stories about watching their parents leave and feeling unable to, to speak. And in response to the sacrifice of parental migration, children are expected to study, you know, which they really try and do uh, to get ahead and honor their parents' efforts and sacrifice on their behalf. But this becomes complicated as they get older uh, because maybe the academic potential reveals itself in the exam scores and so on to suggest they're really not going to progress. And at that point, things can get quite complicated. Children can start to feel disappointed or disillusioned or let down by the promises of this of this parent child striving team. Um, but the power of this narrative around striving for everybody in the family, including children, I think the way that strikes at the heart of the family as in, and embedded in people's moral responsibilities to each other. Uh, is so powerful and I was just struck by how tired everybody seemed all the time. You know, the parents, the children, the grandparents just working so hard with so much pressure and enduring a lot of uh, emotional deprivation, um, but nevertheless, you know, still persevering in pursuit of these dreams that maybe were often uh, elusive. Um, and then a sort of second area is around uh, the connections between family structure and left behind children's experiences, because a, a lot of the literature compares children left behind by one migrant parent versus two. Um, but it actually matters who's migrated, who the caregivers are. And then within, you know, left behind by with grandparents, for example, there's also a lot of uh, heterogeneity. So one very interesting thing was that, you know, children in families where the mother had migrated alone. This is a very particular family situation because in a Chinese context, uh, it's quite rare for the mother to migrate alone. It indicates inherent family vulnerability and stress. So either the fathers were ill or unable to migrate or else there was um, marital discord. So often these children had worse outcomes even than 
to migrant parent children and it was often linked to these pre-existing stresses and then when we look at migrant children for example if it was uh the maternal grandparents as the caregivers and that relationship had endured because it's so exceptional in a Chinese patrilineal cultural context, it suggested a lot of closeness and close relationships. And then there was variation, you know, some children since they stopped suckling on their mother's milk were with grandparents, whereas others had been with their parents till they were six or seven and transferred. And that had a big impact. And some children's attachments to their grandparents were so close that actually it was separation from grandparents that caused them a lot of distress whereas uh, you know of course the focus in the left behind literature is on the the parent child relationship and disruptions to that um, and then i would also say i think the research blurs the boundaries between left behind children and movers left behinds and migrants because all these children to use Xiang Biao's term they were would-be migrants they were being raised and living in the present but knowing that they had to prepare themselves through study to escape rurality and get a secure foothold in an urban job and another way that these boundaries here between children of migrants or left behinds and other categories were blurred is during the summer holidays when very many children spent sort of two months each year with their migrant parents and here their experiences were also very interesting and I think something that deserves further research. Um, you know, a lot of children spent that time sort of locked in a room and getting a very limited view of the city, but also an awareness of their migrant parents' lowly status and that feeding further into their desire to try to escape lowly manual work themselves through, through education. And then finally, I would say, you know, that maybe this book can contribute to a wider line within some research to privilege children's voices as a way of contesting current policy paradigms or current ways of organizing things. Um, you know, to think about alternatives that there isn't an inevitability uh, to everybody working so hard and making such intense uh, sacrifices and also perceiving very narrow routes of success that if you can't go down these then uh, you know um, alternatives aren't viable and you can still have a world wor worthwhile life and be a worthwhile person. Um, so um, those are some of the main areas I hope that the book contributes. Yeah, it's extremely rich and some of the keywords really uh, caught my attention in terms of sacrifice and then the sort of moral moral uh, impact that, that you know, this discourse of sacrifice and the act of sacrifice has then entailed both to the migrant parents themselves, but also to the, to the children. It's, That's uh, it's right. quite striking. Yes, I mean, to, to not do well at school is to let your parents down. And one thing I thought was quite interesting in a study by um, On the Road to School NGO, they found that uh, left behind children and not left behind children uh, were quite similar in how they evaluated their performance at school, but left behind children were much less satisfied with their performance at school. Um, and the researchers thought this might be because given long-term separation from parents, they sort of had extra yearning uh, to feel secure in their parents' affection for them and to win their, their parents' affirmation. Um, so this 
sort of idea that you have to work relentlessly and take responsibility for your life trajectory is yeah deeply ingrained within relationships emotional responsibilities moral responsibilities and and that i think is why it's so potent yeah yeah indeed and also uh, one more thing that I, I noticed was also the like you you phrase, uh, phrase it so so eloquently in terms of you know like is there uh, just a single route you know is migrating to the city uh, you know and then becoming uh, and for this student to be would be migrants and possibly they will be treading the same path as their parents, you know, to, to feel the, the economic development of the big cities. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. I know Xi Jinping is now encouraging people to go back to the countryside and to envisage a good rural life. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really interesting. But I know when I was doing field work in, in Jiangxi province in 19th 97 and 1998 there was plaques everywhere calling on migrants to return to the countryside roots you know leaves fall to the root of the tree come back home and everything and then you know in 2008 with the east asia financial crisis and whenever i've been back you know to china there have all the time been these narratives to call on people to return and yeah. set up enterprises and and lots of celebratory examples yeah. um whether or not this time there's anything different in that narrative uh i think is something that's interesting to to probe yeah. further and whether or not you know people can envisage alternative ways of being successful i mean yeah. we see the current phenomenon of young people lying down don't we to <laughs> yes. indicate um, but you know how this might play out vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, rural people is uh, something worthy of further study. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's fascinating. So uh, while you were conducting uh, this piece of research, or indeed, I mean, you have done the research in China for a long time. Was there any interesting anecdotes that you could share with us? <laughs> I, I think field work and field work with children is is always interesting. Um, I mean when doing the field work I always try to spend a couple of days first in schools um, playing games with the children uh, together with my research assistants um, just to build up uh, familiarity and I remember going into one classroom for primary school students and and writing my Chinese name on the blackboard and they were all laughing because um, I got I wrote my character wrong and I couldn't oh. work out how to write, I couldn't remember how to write the middle part. But I think that's also, it it's kind of helps to equalize and put the children at ease because they know they're just dealing with a very ordinary person. And then sometimes during interviews, you know, they would lose their tones and I would know they were mimicking my, my Chinese. Um, <laughs> um but yeah there were quite a lot of interesting encounters with with children um so i mean i would always ask the children at the end of the interview what their three wishes in life were and i remember one boy answering that um he wished he could grow one really big foot to squash on anyone who squash anyone who asked him what his three wishes in life were wow. um, <laughs> there are all sorts of you know um fun things like that in terms of the, the interaction with children. Sometimes there could also be inconsistencies that could be quite interesting, like, um, you know, one girl who I had interviewed once and her parents weren't migrants. 
Um, and then I, I did a, a follow-up interview with her a few years later, and she told me that her mother had migrated to a biscuit factory for her education and then had later returned. And then I went that weekend to visit her family, and it turned out it was very clear her mother had never been anywhere. Um, and then the girl later found me to kind of say, you know, oh, um, well, and what she meant was she really wished her mother would migrate, you know, ah. because she perceived that if a parent migrated, it meant that they saw a lot of promise in the child, that they would oh. do that for their, for their education. So sometimes inconsistencies would come up in the accounts of children and, and adults um, that could be, that could be interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, so all of those sorts of things make the field work, you know, no, no day, no encounter is the same. Exactly. And I'm quite insightful. I, I, I yeah, I really think, especially the last example, it's like, you know, you, you, you feel, oh, you know, there are some inconsistencies, but actually they yield really extra rich insights about how she perceived migration or, or like so being left, so-called left behind. You know, it, it could be like a, a signifier of uh, of her parents' high expectations on on on, on the left behind children. That's right. That's right. And sometimes also people would say, you know, really mundane things. Children could say quite mundane things. You know, that maybe were quite literal, um, but actually they have real significance. So you know, there was one boy. And I was asking him, his primary school boy, you know, and he'd come back from spending time in the city with his parents who ran a, a duck meat stall and asking him, where did he prefer, you know, home or out in the city? And he's like, home. And then, well, what is there to do with the city? Well, I just, you know, sat with my parents selling duck meat. Well, you know, where do you prefer? Well, I prefer here. Why? You know, because I just, I'm so fed up of eating duck meat every day. I can't stand it. And then actually some of those sorts of things reveal something. They're actually quite significant. You know, yeah. they could show the parameters of their experience or, um, you know, what it meant to occupy that niche uh, within the city. Uh, and so sometimes looking into those sorts of statements that at the time don't seem so interesting or relevant can in fact turn out to be quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, indeed. And, and I, I bet like, you know, because you have been, you, you, you just earlier re uh, revealed that you had been doing this piece of research for 10 years and you have been thinking about it or, or writing about it. Yeah, so I suppose sometimes you, you would sort of, uh, there, you encounter something and then at a very later, a much later point, and then you, you feel something like, oh, you know, that, that was how, how things are, con are connected. Exactly. I mean, in yeah. the beginning, I did not mean to do a longitudinal study at all. Mm. It's just so much time passed between, you know, my first data gathering and me really having chance to do much analysis and writing. And I thought, you know, oh, things feel out of date and it would be really good to go back and check some things. And the longitudinal dimension of the research sort of uh, evolved, in fact. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and I, I can we, we can already see the the impact or, or the the uh, miraculous power of longitudinal uh, research in terms of, for instance, just now when we were talking about the discourse of asking people to go back to the rural area, you were saying that in 1990s, 
they were there were already such discourses and then you know so so we, we can see we can sort of become very agile in terms of the historicity of, of certain discourses you know uh, that's history. right yeah. that's exactly right it always feels like it's the first time that people are being called back to the countryside but in fact it is a continuous discourse it's just been articulated by different people and now it's Xi Jinping saying it um yeah. but uh, you know certainly very many other people have said it <laughs> yeah 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 and then one then starts to wonder why do we need to keep saying that you know if the rural is so attractive then yes. <laughs> maybe we don't need that that kind of discourse <laughs> yes yes yeah 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 that's fascinating and you know many of our network members are interested in the publication process uh, so we are wondering whether you could share with us how you went about proposing this book to the very prestigious cambridge university press and uh, what were the highlights or challenges of getting this book published so um on the on the website for cambridge university press um there's a guidance on how you put together a proposal uh so i put together that proposal and tried to emphasize what I thought was different about my project, whilst also indicating that it addressed an area where there was a lot of interest. So highlighting that research on migration in China and on education in China and on family and on gender <laughs> are all very burgeoning active areas. Um, but nevertheless, my book makes a unique contribution because it looks at these dynamics these topics through children's eyes so try to highlight that um so that was really the approach to send off that proposal and then i was very fortunate um that they got back and wanted to review the manuscript but i do know lots of colleagues who've had their books published with very good presses you know they start off with one publisher and for whatever reason um, you know, but they still end up with a really good publisher. So the, I think you just work your way down the list with your proposal and give editors time to, to reply. Mm. Um, and then in terms of challenges, of course, you get back the reviewers' comments. Um, mm. And the reviewers have been very generous. And um, my reviewers were certainly um, very generous, but also generous with their very critical feedback. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, especially after you've spent 10 years and lots of time writing you know you think you're done you think your desk is clear mm. and then once the reviewers comments came back you know there was another six or seven months of writing and then I think the challenge is knowing when to let go and and mm. saying okay this is is good enough you know otherwise it's just never going to um progress it's mm. never going to be to be out there mm. um so so that was my experience mm. um yeah so so uh, does it mean that when you uh, sent out your proposal to to cambridge university press you already had your manuscripts or yes i already right? yes i already had my manuscript so i sent out the proposal and a sample chapter mm. Mm. um and i of course sent the chapter that i thought was the best one <laughs> um and and I told them that the manuscript was ready for review if they were interested. So uh, so let's talk about the timeline. So from the moment you send out your proposal to getting the the book contract, uh, you know what? How how much time? Uh, oh goodness, take? I I actually can't remember it. Also, it all blurs. You know, I think it was 
probably a few weeks I think it was about six or seven weeks to hear back on the proposal mm. um, and then I sent off the manuscript and then I think the manuscript review was probably about six or seven months wow. um, and then I acted on the reviewer's suggestions and that was another six or seven months and then after I had acted on the reviewer's suggestions and it had gone out for review again mm. um, to see that the revisions and the weaknesses of the original manuscript had been addressed sufficiently. Um, then I got the contract and then wow. it was published. So probably, probably the whole process between initial submission of the proposal to the actual publication of the book maybe have been about two years. Yeah, something wow. like that. Wow, it's, it's good to have this perspective, you know, to put things in perspective and to be prepared for a very long and arduous process. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, whenever we start anything, you know, like when I first started this project of a qualitative understanding of behind children's lives, I was thinking of it in terms of a three or four year project. Mm. I never imagined it would take this long, but somehow, you know, I mean, I think that's academia is an exercise in persistence, really. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And in, in Chinese, we have a saying, uh, which is about, it, it takes you 10 years to, to get a, a good sword, you know, 十年磨一剑, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating example. Yeah. Um, so it, it's also great to learn that, you know, your research project was sponsored by a major British Academy fellowship. So, uh, you know, many of our network members are earlier in their career. And so I was wondering if you could share with us some advice about how early career academics can navigate the funding application processes. Oh, so that's a good question. I mean, in fact, I don't feel I, I mean, I've had uh, some good luck, but broadly, I've also had a lot of rejections. Um, and um, for the initial collaborative project with Tauran, we tried a couple of places and we got rejected and we rewrote the proposal. And then finally, we got funding to do the survey. And I think that was really useful because through doing that research, I started to really get into the topic. Um, and what I've learned from the limited successes I have had with funding applications is that um, I tend to have a much better chance of, of success when writing about something where my thoughts are really mature. And I've been thinking about it for a long time um, rather than when I try to address a new topic and still put lots of work in, um, but it's a different topic, maybe because the funding call, you know, I once tried for something on um, China in Africa and, mm. and put a lot of work into that, but it mm. wasn't really a literature that I had been steeped in or something I'd been thinking about for a long time. By the time I applied for the British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship, I'd already spent a couple of years thinking about the topic of left behind children mm -hmm. and had a vision of the manuscript that was possible. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the fact that the ideas were quite mature, like I think it's probably always good if you've already written a journal article on something or you've already spent time thinking about something, I mm -hmm. think there would be a maturity to the narrative. Um, mm -hmm. That's been my personal experience. 
Mm. Um, and then the other thing I think is to make it very clear that the outputs that you're proposing or promising are very feasible. Mm. Um, you know, so not over promising and also demonstrating that you're already part way along this road and that with this funding, you know, it would be possible to realize this vision or that vision. Mm. Um, but again, I also think it's just down to persistence again and you know that um and and luck who the reviewers are how generous they are <laughs> yeah. I mean that's also one one element of it um but uh you know I treat it like journal papers um you know the belief that every journal paper will get a home that every criticism and rejection is just a way of getting closer that's the kind of self-talk I give in order to uh keep going on but of course putting in for a research grant is very time consuming and there is only a limited number of places that you can resubmit to. So, I mean, that's also another reason to try and put in project proposals around things where your thinking is already quite mature because it's just more efficient in terms of time as well. So mm -hmm. I would say those are sort of the wisdoms I've distilled from my own experience. Very, very useful. Thank you so much. Yeah, very, very insightful. And uh, so uh, my next question is about your collaboration, because just now you mentioned Professor Thousand a few times, and, and we understand from your, your book that you have been collaborating with uh, colleagues, including Professor Tao, uh, you know, in China for a long time. So can you share with us uh, your tips about fostering and sort of sustaining this kind of long term collaboration? So for this particular project that was a qualitative exploration of children's perceptions and experiences, um, I mean, I think one thing that was useful was to do lots of presentations about my research, even in the very early stages about what I was finding and what I was thinking within the provincial academies and, and provincial universities that were hosting me because given the political context of China and the fact that if anybody hosts your research, actually they are taking some sort of risk, mm. um, that, uh, you know, it really let people understand what I was trying to do. Um, mm. And this was also a conversation that they were very interested in and could felt was meaningful from their own perspective. So building that understanding, I think, made them willing to help with research access. So I did a lot of presentations. Um, I always had research assistants from local provincial academies and institutions, um, and they were, they were wonderful. They were really, really helpful, um, and they made a, a big difference to the research, and um, it was good practice in terms of doing research with children to have them present, um, but also the interviews just went much better because they were there. But that kind of openness, um, you know, that it's fine, whatever conversations I'm having in this research, you know, it's fine to have other local academics present, I think also built up or helped to sustain trust. And then in terms of these, uh, local academies and universities engaging in ongoing relationships. So um, welcoming their scholars to come to the UK and hosting them. Um, and uh, for example, 
we will have a shared online conference with the Jiangxi Academy of Social Science uh, later this year. So keeping these academic conversations going over a long period of time and trying to build reciprocity into that um, and um, kind of being very clear to people about what you're doing and what your research purpose is. Um, those, I think, are all ways of approaching the research, uh, especially as a foreign researcher yeah. um, in, in, in the Chinese context. Yeah, so that's fantastic. So it seems that, yeah, like the, the key is to be very transparent and honest and sort of uh, um, keep keep the, the sort of communication channel very, very open. Yeah. Because you need people to host you, you need people to give help you with access to the field. I mean, mm. in fact, it being a foreign researcher there, I realize, you know, I am a big imposition. Um, you know, also because <laughs> people are very busy, mm. you know, they have their lives, they have their uh, work commitments, they have their family commitments. So to take time to accompany me or, you know, for teachers or headmasters to take time out to uh, introduce my research and make connections with respondents when they have so many other burdens upon them in fact it's incredibly <laughs> generous um yeah. and so you're sort of so dependent on very many people's uh, goodwill yeah. yeah that's very true I, I often feel you know myself when i conduct research i always feel very very grateful to my participants or the, to gatekeepers because it's you, you are you're right it's an imposition you know um yeah so that's that's wonderful insights so and um, what are your next uh, plans or steps for, for for these very fascinating research uh that I mean, that's that's made difficult because of covid so i mean there's two things that i would really like to do one thing is I would like to do more research on children's experiences of holidays, summer holidays, and look mm. at different social groups, uh, mm. because I think that is really under-researched in the education literature and literature on children generally, um, and mm. also in a Chinese context. Mm. Um, I have a little bit about it on my book, but I just think there's so much more I would have liked to have written had mm. I had the presence of mind to collect the data on it. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is that I would really like to follow some of these children because this research started in 2010. Mm. You know, the research participants had a mean age of 12 years. So mm. like they're 22 or 23 or 24 now. Uh, uh, and it would be very interesting to learn about how their life course has panned out and what their reflections are in relation to their own family formation. Mm. Um, maybe this is something that will be possible in a couple of years time. Uh, it sounds so exciting and so important, you know, because you are literally following a generation of left behind children. And it's like seven, seven up, but in China. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. That would be, you know, it would be extremely important. Yeah, that sounds so exciting. So is there anything else that you would like to share with us today? Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, let me think. Um, you know, I mean, I would say for I guess I was very lucky because I already had job security and I, you know, I guess it's harder for people who are coming out of their PhD or in postdoc positions, but I really think there's value in slow research. You know, I think we can get frustrated with ourselves that we're not producing for long periods of time, but 
if we produce things very quickly often there's good sides to that but I think there's also good sides to taking time uh, mm. and uh, you know engaging with the same period people over a period of time if possible mm. um, and then also I think you know research that highlights the importance of children's experiences in the, in their families and the relational dimensions of well-being i mean i hadn't realized the full significance of that for children uh mm. until i was doing a lot of the background reading um for this book and you know there's so much emphasis in many countries on other priorities um mm. but we know that in terms of having a uh, a, a, a happy, stable, productive next generation and workforce that happy childhoods really do matter a lot. And so I think there's a lot of value in research that listens to children. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really, really important uh, uh, pieces. These are very important pieces of advice for, for, for us. Thank you so much, Rachel. It, it's been a, a great pleasure talking to you about your wonderful book. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Cora. Thank you. Thank you. We are delighted to have this opportunity to listen to Rachel about her intriguing research journey, anecdotes and sharing about her tips for proposing her book to a university press, applying for research funding and fostering long-term research collaborations. We wish Rachel all the best with developing further research projects based on this admirable longitudinal piece of research. Thank you all.